Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for joining us this week. On the program this time, the Air Force has a plan for what it says will be a data-driven revolution across the service. Later on in the program, we'll hear from Dr. Will Roper, the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics, about how the service is updating its procurement strategies to stay on the cutting edge of technology. We'll begin, though, with a new framework just being rolled out now called the Digital Air Force. Officials say they've come to realize the processes and systems that let the Air Force dominate the domains it fights in are quickly becoming obsolete, partly because potential adversaries have already started to use modern technology to undermine those systems. One way to stay ahead, they think, is to build a warfighting architecture where every system can connect, share, and learn. Service leaders have been traveling around the country over the last few months to discuss the Digital Air Force with airmen and other stakeholders. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni tagged along on one of those trips to Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama, along with the Acting Secretary of the Air Force, Matt Donovan, and the Air Force's Vice Chief of Staff, General Stephen Wilson. They talked about the plan on a government aircraft en route to Maxwell, so please forgive the slight background noise you'll hear. So the Digital Air Force uh, really consists of three parts. Uh, The first part is having a robust IT infrastructure uh, that forms the background, or the backbone, if you would, for uh, all our infrastructure requirements. The second part is having a data strategy uh, that includes a, a standardized data architecture so that we can easily manipulate the data that we are capturing from all, all parts of the Air Force. And then the last part is to reform our business processes in relation to those first two pieces so that we become uh, much more effective and efficient in how we use the data. And I think one of the things that is really interesting about this is that it fits into this near-peer competition. I think, General, I want to bring you into this too because it has a lot of multi-domain sort of aspects to it. So how does this fit within the adversarial roles of, of China and Russia? And how does that change from just having these weapon systems that we were using that were disaggregated to, to what we're, where we're at now? Well, the big thing is is that we've been very successful so far with the, the American military and the individual platforms that we have. The problem is these exquisite capabilities are, uh, are largely unconnected from each other. So we need to get to a point where uh, a family of systems and everything connected for multi-domain command and control, we're ultimately trying to get to any sensor uh, will provide information to any suitor, uh, shooter in order to uh, prosecute a target that may be required. And whether that target is in space, cyberspace, uh, on the ground, in the air, or at sea, doesn't really matter. But we we need to get to this ubiquitous communications, the ability for multi-domain command and control in order to connect any sensor to any shooter. And and General, how does that work in to the way that you need weapon systems for operations now, that just the whole landscape of warfare is changing. It's not as physical, it's not as, you know, in your face, but rather this kind of cyberspace domain type thing. Yeah, so we, as we look through what I call the joint operating concept of how we're thinking through warfare in the future, as the Secretary just talked about, it, it really does start with, I have to have a global sensing network, and I got to have the communication that connects all those uh, pieces of sensors into this all-domain command and control. So across all air, land, sea, cyberspace, 
and then I need to be able to produce effects at speed, range, and mass that give adversaries dilemmas and they don't know how to, it's too hard for them, right? So that I'm actually trying to deter conflict. But in this digital Air Force that we're trying to build, as the Secretary talked about, right, I, I really have to be able to take machine speed and do things at machine speed and do what machines are really good at and at the same time do what humans are good at. And so I got to have humans, I'm going to call it on the loop, with decision science backed with machine speed information and all the data and the data architecture that the Secretary just talked about. So the effect may be a cyber effect at, at range and speed, or it may be uh, a, an air weapon or a naval weapon or undersea or space. But I give an adversary, where's it coming from and how do I deal with it? It's too many problems. That's what we're trying to build in this, this joint uh, operating concept. And, and you talked about an advanced battle management system, I believe. And tell us a little bit about that, because I think that's a really good, concrete way to, to describe how you're going to be using this. Well, we consider the advanced battle management system sort of the pathfinder, the foundation for multi-domain command and control. And uh, it, it really relates to what I was just talking about with any sensor to any shooter. We need to connect those, but we also need to put that command and control loop in the middle of it. And uh, as the vice chief talked about, he talks about the machine speed that, that we need to be able to operate at so that we can reduce the decision time required to stay inside the enemy's decision cycle. No matter how, uh, how much intuition or how much experience a human has, it will never, uh, a human will never be able to operate at the speed of the machine-to-machine learning. And the vice chief said we have to have a human on the loop, not necessarily in the loop, uh, because what we're talking about is a very deadly business that, you know, humans have to be uh, uh, in charge of this. It, you know, we're not talking about Skynet Terminators. No, it's exactly what we're, we're So we're going to try and go out this fall and experiment. We picked a place out at Nellis. We're going to call it the Shadow Ops Center. We're bringing all of our joint service partners, all the intelligence community, all the DARPAs and special agencies, and pretty much inviting everybody to come help us as we rapidly prototype, experiment, and see what works. But we picked that place because it's close by the Marines and Yuma where they train, it's close by the Navy at Fallon, it's close by the National Training Center where the Army trains, as well as our big Nellis range. And so we'll bring everybody together, rapidly prototype and experiment, see what works, see what doesn't work. Part of this plan is adding in a kind of IT as a service. That's one of the things that you brought up before. and you are going to try and take some of your cyber warriors now and, and kind of get them into more high-level stuff. Uh, and then you tell us about what you would like industry to do uh, instead of having your cyber warriors do that. Well, you know, uh, the, the Verizons, the AT&Ts, the Sprints of the world uh, do this as part of their daily business, right? And they're actually pretty good at, at providing network services. So what we would like to do is free up our military airmen who do this on a day-to-day -day basis and give them, as you said, more of a high-level role in the actual military cyber offensive and cyber defensive operations. Because um, what we find is that we have an awful lot of airmen that are doing those same type of jobs. Now, We'll never be able to totally get rid of that because we're not going to get the AT&T and the Verizons and the Sprints to, you know, deploy in that last tactical mile in a hostile environment. Uh, so we do have to have a cadre of people that can do that, set up battlefield networks and that sort of thing. 
But for our day-to-day operations, especially in the continental United States, you know, where bases that, that we're operating from, um, I think we're going to find that it's going to be much more effective and much more efficient to have those companies that do this for main, uh, their main business. Are you already signaling that to, to the companies and are you starting to change uh, specialty codes at this point to, to get to where that you want to be with that? We're, we're in a risk reduction phase right now. So what we've done is, is we've uh, let risk reduction contra- on contracts for eight uh, bases in the southeast region of the United States. And uh, so this is, we've just um, awarded those contracts. So what we're going to do is, is do the risk reduction, find out where the issues are, because we're not going to go wholesale and change all the, the folks that are actually managing and operating those networks today. Uh, but we're very confident that uh, that we're going to make some uh, make some progress with this. So we're looking at the next 15 bases in the northwest of the United States. Uh, uh, that contract will be awarded pretty soon as well, too. So I think the jury's still out on it, but I think we have high confidence that it's going to work right. When it comes to the operational side, I mean, you you work with the cyber warriors. Do they get frustrated having to do? The, the simple things like lay cable when they are programming and, and do you think that they uh, should be doing the high, the high level type stuff more? Well, I just came back from uh, visiting with the Cyber Wings yesterday yeah, in, in San Antonio. So yeah. I, I got to see some of the amazing airmen in action. I was telling the secretary a story about a young lieutenant and he went to his boss and he said, I got this really hard problem. And he said, what I'd like is five people and I'll solve it in five days. Came back to his boss five days later and said, Okay, I didn't solve the problem. As a matter of fact, I failed. Uh, I need a few more people, and I need 45 days. I worked away for 45 people, broadened it, came back and said, I failed. I need a few more people, and I need 90 days. And he came back again the third time and said, hey, hey boss, this is really hard. I brought in the interagency. I brought all the pros. We built these cross-functional teams. We've scoped the problem. We have a sense of urgency. We brought processes in place to be able to get it. We haven't fixed it yet. Few days after the 90 days, they didn't solve it, but they got their first success. And, and I was really fired up when I heard this because I said, "This, this is exactly what the chief's talking about." And, and as the secretary talks about, how do we empower our airmen, right? And so we have a greatly empowered airman. He was working with young, young enlisted, young officers. He had a squadron commander that let them fail, that encouraged them, and, and they actually saw success. But it was only after failing a few times. So. What I, what I sense from the, our young folks today is, is they want to solve hard problems. They want to get after things that they can make a difference in. And, and when, I, when I went there to visit yesterday, I came away really inspired because we got a lot of airmen who want to do that. And, and they are frustrated with our old infrastructure, uh, with what they have within their own personal device you know, that we're trying to bridge to as we get to this digital air force. And as the secretary talked about, this enterprise IT as a service and how do we move that forward. Just to add on to that a little bit, the last Oh gosh, I don't remember where, uh, when I actually went to the Goodfellow Air Force Base, which is where they have the cyber school for airmen. And uh, they brought me in with this class that had just gone through a certain phase of training. And uh, they gave me a briefing on being able to defend a network. And they went down to the, to the port level and the bit level. And it was very impressive and very technical. And I asked a couple of them, I go, hey, what were you doing like three months ago? because they had come out of basic training and went to this technical training school. And they said, wow, I was a senior in high school. 
you know, I mean, uh, but these guys are so bright. They're what I call digital natives. You know, they've, they've grown up being able to use apps and understanding connectivity and being connected, and they've come to expect that uh, from their Air Force as well, too. Uh, because one of the things that we talked about is the value proposition of serving in the Air Force. And the first proposition is, is that you get to work with amazing people every day. The second proposition is you get to make a difference for your, for your unit, for your organization, for your nation. And then the third proposition is you get to work with the most advanced cutting-edge technology. And we want to make sure that when they sit down in front of their computer or in front of whatever technology they're working with, that they actually have the most advanced cutting-edge technology to do this deadly business of the nation's defense. Yeah, jumping on top of that, because I went out to Pivotal Labs maybe a year and a half ago and was talking to the CEO, and as they train all the Fortune 50 companies on how to code and do things, and he pulled me aside and he pointed out a second lieutenant and an A1C. He said, these two have been working on a project for me, and he said, I would put these two against anybody at any company anywhere. They are so incredibly talented. He goes, I don't know what you do. I don't know if it's the mission. I don't know if it's the discipline. I don't know if it's about the team. But these two I could put in any Fortune 50 company, and they would excel. they're as good as anybody I've ever seen. And at that time, they'd taken a, a really hard coding problem, and they'd, they'd uh, uh, done it in a, in a time and scale that was, again, was beating industries around the world. But it's, it's, it's what we're getting in our Air Force and what we need in our Air Force. And what I told our team today is I said, hey, cyber warfare is, is, is going to be integral to war fighting in the future and how we fight. And so that, that network that the Secretary talked about, that global sensing network and the communication architecture and the joint all-domain C2 is going to be integral to how we fight. And our cyber warriors are going to be a big part of it. That's the Air Force's Vice Chief of Staff, General Stephen Wilson, along with the Acting Secretary of the Air Force, Matt Donovan, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. More on the Digital Air Force after a quick break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbio. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And getting back to our conversation with the Acting Secretary of the Air Force, Matt Donovan, and the Air Force's Vice Chief of Staff, General Stephen Wilson. They talked with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about the initiative they've just unveiled called the Digital Air Force. And as we heard before the break, part of the plan is to move more toward buying information technology as a service. There has been this issue recently with privatization with housing, right? And, and I realize this is an apples and oranges comparison, but the DOD kind of took its eye off the ball and did not follow through on making sure that the industry was keeping up with the things it should. How can you hold industry accountable for the things that you need to, to really that is so secure or so important to the security of your networks and everything like that. Well, I think I think you're exactly right. It is related to IT and IT infrastructure uh, because going back to what I talked about with digital natives and the airmen that are coming into digital natives. For example, you know, uh, if 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 one of these young airmen uh, wants to do a banking transaction, they get on their app. Right? They get on their bank app and they pay bills. They uh, can Venmo money to one of their friends that they owe money and that sort of thing. You know, if they want to book a flight on an airline, 
they get on the same iPhone and they go to the airline uh, app and, and they can book that flight. So they have this certain expectation of things to do. So one of the things that we would like to do is how do we take advantage of that? When we talk about IT as a service, we have, we have 685,000 military and civilian airmen in our Air Force. We're not going to be able to afford to buy each of them an iPhone or a laptop or any of those things. So why don't we take advantage of using some kind of a security wrapper and provide end-to-end -end encryption on apps that we can put on their phone that are trusted and all that. So we're working really hard on that. Now back to your privatized housing thing. We do have some bases now that have implemented just that. So in other words, uh, uh, a family member that lives in a house has an app on their phone for privatized housing and, and getting work orders completed and stuff. So for example, they go, hey, I, I found a spot of mold under my kitchen cabinet or kitchen sink cabinet. They can open that app, write a work order, use the same phone to take a picture of the problem, and then send it to the housing office that will distribute it to the right people to get it done. They can track the status of the order the entire time, and then they can, uh, you know, get uh, scheduled when the workman will come to repair it. You know, hey, I'll be there next Tuesday at 10 o'clock or whatever, depending on the severity of the problem. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. So why don't we get that transition to every part of an airman's life? So when he has to do some kind of financial transaction for his pay, you know, we, we ought to be able to encrypt that and use uh, secure end-to-end -end encrypted apps right on his own phone instead of going back to the uh, to stand in line and sign in on a piece of paper and wait for his turn to get serviced by an individual. Whether it's financial, uh, whether it's uh, personnel related, hey, he wants to update his emergency uh, contact card, you know, his emergency contact information in case something happens to him. You ought to be able to do that right from your own phone. You know, just think about how we would increase the efficiency with being able to do that. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is how can you hold companies accountable to make sure that they're keeping their end of the bargain? Because in that situation, when, you, when things were privatized 20 years ago and the housing corp, uh, companies, they did have not kept their end of the bargain in this. And, and DOD also is, is to blame. You don't want that to happen with your your wiring, with your right. networks. So, you know, how do you work with companies to make sure that you're you're with them every step of the way? Well, uh, you know, it all starts back with uh, writing a very strong statement of work, right? We've we've got to get the statement of work right, and then and then when we design a contract, you know, the contract has to be fair to both parties. Uh, but we have to understand that these companies are in business in a profit and loss arrangement, right? They're not doing it for tra uh, for uh, charity. So we need to make sure that they're fairly compensated for the service that they provide and so that they can stay profitable. At the same time, we have to hold them accountable for what they signed up to do. And in your discussion about the privatized housing, I, you can't make a sweeping generalization and say that all of them have not because, you know, there, there are uh, several... Uh, companies uh, that are spread out on these privatized housing uh, arrangements and some of them have been fantastic and we get surveyed back from the you know the housing occupants that go no we have no problem whenever we we put a work order in they come fix it and we're satisfied with it you know where other ones have struggled a little bit again so uh, so it's it's all part of making sure that we have the good contractual arrangements in there but understanding that you know in a capitalistic society Companies exist to make a profit. If they don't provide the service, they go out of business. I mean, it's, hey, that's, that's what happens, right? And yeah. I also tell a story, and I have an email account, 
it's, it's uh, in my private account. It's Gmail, and it's never been down, to my knowledge, because there people are relying on it to be up. And if it doesn't, people will go somewhere else. And some people think it's hard to do because of security. Well, the banking industry has cracked that nut. You know, uh, people aren't going to do banking transactions transactions over. Uh, some kind of network that's not secure when you're talking about their livelihood and their money. So uh, there, there are ways to get after this. Matt Donovan is the acting secretary of the Air Force. The other voice is General Stephen Wilson, the Air Force's vice chief of staff. A few more minutes of their discussion with Federal News Network Scott Massioni after another break on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbio. There are nearly 2 billion websites in the world. But there's only one that matters to the federal IT community. Welcome to AskTheCIO.com, the longest-running program on federal IT, featuring Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller. AskTheCIO.com, exclusive CIO and IT decision-maker interviews, breaking news, on-demand and updated daily. Sign up at AskTheCIO.com and become an insider with full access to federal IT news, special events, and actionable intel. AskTheCIO.com. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And a few more minutes with Matthew Donovan, the Acting Secretary of the Air Force, and General Stephen Wilson, the U.S.'s Vice Chief of Staff. They talked with Federal News Network Scott Massioni en route to Maxwell Air Force Base about this new initiative called the Digital Air Force. Yeah, I wanted to ask you what you think your airmen are going to be getting out of this and, and how it might empower them to do their jobs better. Uh, you know, there, there's this data part to it. There's this IT part to it. Uh, what do you think that they're going to be seeing and, and how soon might they see it? So I talk about we need to be able to teach our airmen how to dance is the acronym I use because it's about data. It's about connecting data to the algorithms, the algorithms to the network, the network to the cloud, the cloud to the edge, and the edge and the ecosystem that supports all that. Right? And that's, so that's in essence of what we're trying to lay out with our, with our AI, with our digital strategy. But I got to understand the data. I got to have the right again at machine speed. It's got to get to a network. We think the cloud is really important to be able to get access that data, but in the future, also I have to be able to do that at the edge, because we operate globally, and so I got to be able to pull all that together. And so, as we talked to everybody, I said, I don't know what the solution looks like. You're going to have to help us, but but this is what the architecture we're trying to lay in the place. You know, back to what I was talking about, our airmen that are coming in are, are digital natives. They have an expectation that the way they work in their military lives for the Air Force should be comparable to what they do in the rest of their lives. You know, whether it's like I talked about, whether it's ordering an airline ticket or paying a bill online or something like that. And, uh, and we owe it to them so that we can optimize their time at work so that they can do the really hard work of defending the nation and putting their uh, putting all their energy into into that without fighting with IT or or uh, any other kind of shortfall like that with equipment. One of the things that you mentioned in your speech is that uh, after the next two years, the military budget is likely to kind of go a little more stagnant. Uh, how will this be operating in an era when you might not have these continual increases? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we have to do is we have to private prioritize within the, the money that Congress authorizes and appropriates to us. And uh, it will it will take some 
some tough choices. Uh, one of the things about a strategy is not so much what you're going to do, it's what you're no longer going to do, and especially in a declining budget environment. And, uh, and you'll see that the Air Force is working very hard on that to align with national defense strategy imperatives. And, uh, you know, we can't afford business as usual anymore. So it's a really important thing. The other part of that is, is we really need Congress to, uh, to authorize and appropriate our defense dollars on time or as, as quickly on time as possible. There's been a lot of talk lately about another uh, continuing resolution. And uh, although, you know, a short-term continuing resolution so they, they can work out the fine details is probably okay. But in my experience, one continuing resolution leads to another one, and then you get up to Christmas time, and then they say, well, we'll come back in January 15th. And, and when that happens, that, that ends up squeezing all that money when they finally do appropriate to us to more of the middle of the year. And then we have trouble executing it in the time remaining in the fiscal year. And then, uh, and then folks will say, well, you didn't execute the money right, and, we'll, and it becomes this sort of death spiral you know, chasing our tails with it. So uh, last year, as you know, was the first time in a really long time we had appropriations on time by the 1st of October for the fiscal year. And uh, we really like that because that gives us the most efficient way of spending uh, uh, the harder taxpayer dollars. Can I come to you? The Secretary's been uh, pushing us to think through this, this, the problem in this way. Start with the threat. To the strategy, and we have the strategy, and we've got everybody aligned between the national security strategy and the national defense strategy. From that, we develop concepts and operations and how we're going to fight. From that, we develop a force design, and in our case, an air force design. And then we set the requirements and acquire the things we need to do, and, and that requires a stable budget to be able to do that. But as we as we look at the air force we need, we're also, as the secretary just mentioned, thinking hard about the air force we don't need. Right? And so we're asking things like. If it doesn't make us faster or more lethal, and we're not going to use it in a peer fight in 2030, then do we free up those resources now to build the Air Force that we do need right? and as we prioritize that? And so we're, that's, what, that's what we're talking a lot about, and how do we, how do we get that right? And what is, so it's important we, we, we do all those things to find the threat, the strategy, the count ops, the force design requirements to, to what we acquire in the future. Where is most of the investment for this data strategy, their digital Air Force strategy, come in? Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the IT and, and sort of making that, wrapping that whole security around it. But, um, you know, does this take a lot of investment or is this something that is just a change in culture? It's going to take some investment to make the initial change. And one of the, one of the challenges that we've had is... Uh, because IT and IT requirements are in almost every program and every budget line that we have. And so it's been a little bit of a challenge to disaggregate that, to parse that all out and figure out where are we actually spending money on it. You know, each individual acquisition program has a line for IT. And, uh, you know, each, each uh, major command that we have has lines for IT. So, what we're trying to do is centralize this, capture everything that we need, but we do understand that it's going to take some upfront investment, but we're going to achieve some savings later. And uh, and you know that's that's been sort of one of the one of the problems we always have is do you do you invest the money upfront and then immediately take the savings without approving out? And we've found in the past that that doesn't work too well. 
because sometimes things just don't materialize like the way you, you know, when you do it in that way, which means you end up letting your IT infrastructure get behind and, it's, and it hasn't been refreshed and replaced as necessarily as it needs to have. About 10 years ago, there was a big drive to get efficiencies. So we, we took the money savings anticipated from the efficiencies, but then it never really played out in the way we're doing it now with enterprise IT as a service. So we essentially just reduced the funding and, uh, and it put us into a bad situation. So it will take some upfront funding, uh, but uh, that's part of the risk reduction efforts that we're going through right now is as we go through a base and we make this transition, now we go, okay, let's capture the savings of what we're not spending at each organization and unit level anymore because we have this enterprise IT as a service that is one comprehensive package. Matthew Donovan is the Acting Secretary of the Air Force. He also heard from General Stephen Wilson, the Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force. They talked with Federal News Network's Scott Bassioni about a new initiative called the Digital Air Force. One more break, and we'll wrap up this week's show with some thoughts on how the Air Force is modernizing its acquisition processes to make that digital vision a reality. Dr. Will Roper, the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics, is with us when we come back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbin. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And in our final few minutes, we'll pivot from the Air Force's vision for a digital Air Force to some of the changes it's making in its acquisition processes to make that vision a reality. Dr. Will Roper is the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics. He sat down with Federal News Network's Tom Temin to talk about those changes, how the Air Force is shifting from a focus on buying things to buying ideas. Acquisition reform is really about trying to be competitive against the threats that we face. And it's a very different century uh, in the 21st than it was in the 20th. So we have a lot of things that we have to change. One of them is how we work with tech startups and small businesses. So historically, the department has done contracting at a very slow pace. And that was fine during the Cold War when we were working with large defense industrial companies when technology was mainly created on government nickel and it didn't change very quickly. So it would often take a decade to make a huge technology leap ahead. And many of the ones that were made in the Cold War, the internet, satellites, things that we often tout as big defense successes, GPS is one in the Air Force. Uh, those were slow moves in a very strategic game of chess with the Soviet Union. Well, fast forward to this century, technology is changing all the time. So the acquisition system can't wait on new technologies to be developed inside the government. We need to be able to rapidly incorporate technologies wherever they're created. And increasingly, that's in the burgeoning tech startup, eco tech startup ecosystem that this country and the world is currently enjoying. Well, our contracting process on its best days would take two months to award to a small business. And we'd be high-fiving ourselves, saying how lightning fast we are and how mavericky we're being in the contracting world. Where for a company that's small enough, two months may be the difference between whether you make payroll or not. And so we wanted to take that two months all the way down to a single day, get the contracting length down to a half page, something you could read and understand what you're getting into, because it should be in plain English. 
and get the speed at which we could put you on contract and pay you to minutes. And what we did in New York was our calling card to the tech startup world, that we care about them, that we want to do business at a pace of relevance for them, and that we don't want to just be a purchaser from them. We want to be a partner with them. We want to help them become successful, not just in selling to the Defense Department, but in being dual use, selling to us and then to the rest of the world. And we can be a strategic partner in achieving that. So what we did in New York is had 60 companies come in, and we awarded to 51 of them in less than 15 minutes on average. And that was not just awarding, it was awarding and having money in their bank accounts. And we did that using government credit cards. So we were swiping on square readers and other electronic transaction devices and had a lot of great support from U.S. Bank to uh, push back on the fraud alerts that we were triggering in New York after we had all of these 50,000, 100,000 transactions that occurred one after another. Well, let me just ask you here, though, because the use of a government credit card is a normal thing when you're buying any kind of commodity if you need new copy or paper or whatever the case might be. The difference here was from whom you were buying and what you were buying. And how are you able to vet that that's what the Air Force really needed? If you're buying a commodity like copy paper, no doubt what you're getting and who you're buying it from. But in this case, how did you vet the companies? There must have been some prior process before you could get to that one-hour exchange. Sure. No, government credit cards are used to buy things that are considered pretty ordinary, as you point out. Well, buying cutting-edge ideas needs to be ordinary for us today. So we did our homework on the companies. We made sure that they're U.S.-based. We made sure that we thought they were viable, that they had a good idea, so that when we invited them to come pitch to us, they had already cleared our good-enough-to-get-through-the-gate criteria. But once they got into pitching to us live, we were really scrutinizing their ideas. So the company had already passed muster. Now we want to understand about the idea and the thing that I learned from doing the pitch events is that when you're buying ideas, which is a different thing for the acquisition system to do, we buy products and services in the old model. Now we need to buy ideas. But you're not just buying the idea, you're buying the team too. And so as companies pitched us on their team, their management, their technical expertise, it was important for us to believe that they had the experience to achieve the idea they were pitching but also the energy, the enthusiasm to be able to push through what's going to be a difficult uphill climb to productize it in a way that they could sell to us or to commercial industry. And so in future, I hope that we'll use whatever resource we have, government credit cards, contracts, agreements, whatever is the fastest way to get companies like that working with us. And that in future, the idea of the Air Force being a large purchaser of interesting ideas that could change the future technology landscape for people to think that's just ordinary business for the Air Force. When you buy an idea, you're not getting ownership of the intellectual property. I don't think any company would do that. You're not buying their patents if they have them. So give, give me an example of an idea that you bought and how would that translate into a capability or sure. a service that you need. And you point out an important point. More and more, we're going to own less and less IP because the idea of the government owning it immediately kicks us out of working with companies that have commercial ambitions. So we've got to have a different business model that's a partnership model in this century. And so I'll give a specific example and at the end we can round out what that might mean for other companies. So one of the companies at Pitch Day pitched the idea of having uh, artificial intelligence analysis of data as a service that we could use. 
So we would pipe down data, images, video feeds. We would use their artificial intelligence tools to look at pattern of life, change detection, and those would be output to us as a service. Well, that's a great model for us to pursue with a variety of companies. I don't need to own your box as long as your box is giving me great value at a great rate. And when it's not, I'm going to terminate that initiative and shift whoever is leading the market at that point in time. So one thing that I think will be true in a lot of areas with commercial startups is we're not going to need to own their product. We just want to own it as a service and use the fact that they have commercial ambitions to help keep their prices down and keep their impetus to innovate up. Very different than if you're a defense company that gets a hold of a unique boutique type capability where there's not competition and you expect to hold on to it for decades. The commercial space, we expect there to be very uh, energetic, in some cases violent competition to try to be market leading. And going with that example of AI as a service, which is easy to see where that would be of value to the Air Force and the drone data and it goes on and on. Now, that, let's presume that company also may have a client, say VDOT, Virginia Department of Transportation, may have a need for data analysis, and so might a grocery store chain. But so might also Russia, the Russian television. What's the mechanism to make sure that they can have all the commercial development they want and dream of, but that it also gives the Air Force at, at some point something that the enemy doesn't have? So there are two, there are two things we're going to have to manage in this century. One is the restrictions process that we use to keep critically developed weapons or national security technology from globalizing, from being sold to countries that we don't want it sold to. And the other is being a faster adapter of technologies that will be available to everyone. And so for things that we're developing that we consider to be unique or at least uh, first entry to market on the Defense Department nickel, we'll probably be working in the more restrictive space. But in the case of, of AI as a service, there's so many companies working that. And so if we apply the same Cold War model, we're going to be behind. And so the, the thing I'm pushing in the Air Force is for us to be the fastest adapter and adopter of commercial tech, especially technology like artificial intelligence that is not going to be driven under Defense Department dollar. It is going to be globally available. And so right now, the rules that govern working with small businesses for many of our accounts force us to work with only U.S. companies. And we want to prefer them to give our company, our industry base, a competing edge. But if we can't work with companies worldwide, then we'll fall behind as well. So this is just the first step on really changing how we, the Air Force, work in a global ecosystem of commercial technology and ensure that if you can buy something personally and have it on your phone today, that it's available for our warfighters that fast. Because in the earlier offset developed in the 70s, 60s, maybe into the early 80s, stealth is often cited precision-guided weapons is often cited. Those were hard things. I mean, stealth is the result of a specific coating uh, that's put on the surface of an aircraft or some other vehicle, and et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole system to it. And those were developed by some of the big standard companies that are still defense contractors to this day. But the point is no one else could get their hands on it, even if they wanted to. You're talking about technologies that are so diffuse that it's really the Air Force's ability to play the violin more than the violin itself. And that seems like a 
tougher challenge in some ways. It is. And we will have to divide the world into those two spheres. There are still technologies that we need to be able to develop inside the government. Stealth is one of them. We're not likely to get that anytime soon from commercial industry, though if that changed, we would have to change our model to be a fast adapter. People would paint their cars with it or something. <laughs> yes, it would be a, a definitely a way to beat the radar gun. So let's let's go back to the Cold War and the offset that was done. You know, the Air Force was the ultimate recycler of systems. We took functionality that we could have put in weapons and lost every time we used them, and we put them in places that we could recycle them weapon after weapon. We put detection of targets in space. We put navigation in space through GPS. We put stealth on our airplanes so that they could go in and drop weapons time after time again without being shot down. The only part that we wasted, waste in quotes, was the weapon. You can't reuse that. So we call that parasitic. So that was the shift that we made. Every one of those technologies, satellite-based intelligence, satellite navigation, stealth are hard. They're driven by materials, they're driven by electronic advances, and that was during a period where it took a lot of money to develop technology. Only governments could develop world-changing technologies. Now anyone can. The things that are changing the world have shifted from materials and electronics, though that's still a big player, to software. So software literally eating the world. And now the companies that are moving and shaking in software are not hoping to be defense primes. They're hoping to be the next big Amazon, Facebook, Google. And so if you're in the Air Force and looking at our accounts, so the billions that we have to work with small businesses, how would we engage a company like that? Well, early on, there are a lot of ways. We can make our resources available to them because we're not going to ask for equity. You don't have to give up anything to us, ownership in your company, IP. So we should be an easy first partner. The other thing we have is an interesting marketplace. So we're $700 billion a year in terms of our market, and we can pay a price point that is higher than the commercial market can, and we can often operate at an area of risk that's different than the commercial space. So let's take, for instance, self-flying cars. So you know, I want to see the Jepsons happen on my watch. Those cars are awesome. Where have they been? Think about the challenge of operationalizing something like that domestically, getting through all of the FAA certifications, the safety certifications, versus coming into the Air Force sphere where we can pay a higher price point than our commercial counterparts and we can operate at a different risk profile. You know, why haven't we put ourselves out as a bridging mechanism from someone that has commercial ambitions and wants to get there and they can walk our defense bridge as one of the paths to achieve it? So that's an area that I'm working with our research lab right now to look for commercial partnerships where our money's important, but our marketplace equally is. Dr. Will Roper, the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, Technology and Logistics. Talking there with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. Earlier in the show, two other Air Force senior leaders joined us to lay out their vision for what the service is calling a digital Air Force. If you missed that conversation with the Acting Secretary of the Air Force, Matt Donovan, and the Air Force's Vice Chief of Staff, General Stephen Wilson, you can find this week's show at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD or in our podcast feed. Subscribe on iTunes or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. 
And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.